Today we're talking about contentment, because it's the next part of chapter 4 in our series, Have Joy, Be Fearless, of Philippians chapter 4. And in, that, in this chapter of Philippians, we've been talking about how we're supposed to stand. We stand firmly in the Lord. Um, chapter 4, verse 1. So my brothers whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, do stand firmly in the Lord. We also stand um, peacefully in the Lord. We stand peacefully in the Lord because the Lord's given us this peace that guards our heart. And we have several steps we need to take to get that peace. We have to be rejoicing. We literally have to make a list of things we rejoice in. We also have to be, um, in the text it says we need to be reasonable, which means we need to express grace uh, in all our environments we work in as bosses and, and co-workers and laborers and uh, people that are employed by other people. And in our homes we have to show grace, be reasonable, and we also have to relax, be anxious for nothing, and then ultimately we have to uh, request God's help. And then we saw last week that chapter... 4 verse 8 and 9 says we also need to have our minds purified. We need to protect our minds with pure thoughts. We need to think God thoughts all the time. Fill our minds with God's thoughts so that that peace of God will stay with us and in us and help us. And, uh, and then you come to this passage in chapter 4 verse 10 that's all about contentment. And uh, let me just help you understand the idea of contentment is to be completely satisfied. There are four principles we're going to give you. But the idea of contentment is to be completely satisfied, to lack nothing. What the Greek word means in the original was when the Greeks or the Stoics would come to this place in their life where, where they were literally satisfied and they were in a perfect condition where no aid or support is needed. Now the Greeks meant it as independence. They would actually interchange that word sometimes and say, well, now I'm independent. I don't need anybody else or anything else. Paul means it to say you need to get to the place where nothing else is as important as you and your relationship with God. We're going to see how contentment is able to be accomplished through the scriptures. There was a farmer that once grew very content on his farm and he got tired of the lake property. The lake on the property always needed to be cleaned and it always needed to be stocked and managed and weeded. And so he griped about the cattle that always needed they were breaking down fences and there was feeding issues and he had to care for the cattle. So he finally decided he was going to call a realtor and true story, he asked the realtor to list his farm for sale. And a few days later, the realtor called him back and said, I've been by there and looked at everything, took some pictures, got it all ready to go, got it ready to print in the paper, but I want you to uh, be clear on what we're doing here. I've printed up some information about your property. I want to make sure you're okay with it being printed in the paper. And he said, no problem, read it to me. So she read, for sale, a lovely farm on the outskirts of town, not too far from the city, but in a peaceful and quiet location. Ten plus acres of majestic rolling hills and meadows, carpeted with lush grasses and wildflowers. A beautiful fresh lake nourishes its land, and the healthy, well-fed, and well-bred livestock roam the pastures. The farmer said, read that to me again. After he read it a second time, she read it a second time, he said... I've changed my mind. I'm not going to sell it. In fact, I've been looking for a place like that all my life. It's his place. So we get discontented real easy. And a lot of times we miss the blessing of the contentment that God wants to give us right in the very midst of where we are. So I want you to just hear, about a hundred years ago, it was determined that the average American, it's American, the average American had about 70 wants in other words, if they made a list of things they wanted or needed for their home or their family, 
They took these middle-class guys and they said, what do you, what do you want or need? It's 100 years ago. Um, they had about 70 things. That back in that day, it was, you know, we'd like to have indoor plumbing and we'd like to have a, a washer, you know, one of those cool electric washers instead of that hand crank thing. So they had those kind of desires. A similar survey was taken later by the grandchildren of that same generation and those same families, and they had 500 wants for things to fill their homes and their lives with. And I'm sure, by the way, that survey is almost 15 years old. I bet today the list is enormous, what young families believe they need or want in their home. I watched that happen in our own home as we were raising our kids. Josh, Caleb, and Mary, when they were little, we lived in a little 860-square-foot home in East Lake, Alabama, and uh, raised our kids in that home. They all shared the same bedroom, built triple bunk beds for them at one point. And Josh was on the top, sat real hard, his head would hit the ceiling, and he had to learn to climb out of his bed without raising up. And so, um, but I'll tell you what, and, and that little house had two bedrooms, and a living room, and a dining room, a kitchen area, and a bathroom. That was all we had. But I would never trade the 14 plus years we lived in that house. Because as a family, we were always together. There's nowhere to run and hide. There wasn't places to lock your kids away, you know. And, and where they played was where we were. They, they brought their toys into the living room with us. But I remember at some point, somewhere in their young years, you know, probably six, five, and four, five, six, and seven, they're all stacked up together there. But I remember in those years how much the toys began to pile up. And the amounts of Legos and action figures and Barbie dolls and Barbie cars and all that kind of stuff. Just that one little room just was overwhelming. We built shelves to put it on, and we had there, you know, Josh had, Caleb had a corner, Josh had a section, and he put his stuff in, and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and we finally decided we need to do something different, and it just came to Annette and I um, that we were going to ask them to pack some stuff up. So we bought some totes and said, look, find the toys you really like to play with, and we're going to pack the other ones away. We're going to just put them in the attic. See them one day again or not. Uh, we didn't tell them that. But anyway, we had them, and it was hard. I remember, I remember the, the anxiety of them trying to go, well, I, I like to play with this sometimes. But what we were watching was, you know, there was a bunch of stuff they never touched. You know, until you, until you say you can't, we want you to put that away. Now, I want that, you know, kind of deal. So, so I remember them packing that stuff away, and we put it up in the attic. And here's a little parenting tip for you. About six months later, it was like Christmas for the kids. I was like, hey, we're going to open the attic. And here's the deal. Every toy you bring out of the attic, you can, you got to put one back in. you got to take one from your play now and take it up there. And it was neat to watch them swap that because it was, it was a good lesson for them. They had to process their values and their purposes. And you know this. And I remember when we first did that, and we just opened up those totes up in the attic, and we're like, oh, man, I remember that guy. It was the G.I. Joe or whatever it was. You know, the, whatever, whoever it was. They're like, oh, God, I remember him. He's great. Let's get him out. I'm like, hey, so you got to come upstairs. You know, you got to put something in the attic. You're going to take something down. And it taught the kids, you know, you don't have to have it all. You just take a select amount. But in our nature, in our nature is this have to have, and this is what I want, and this will make me feel better, and this will help me. So Thomas Watson, a great Puritan writer, has this book. By the way, it's free online if you're a Google person. And I know all the crazy things about Google that they're monitoring everything. They're like Big Brother. I get all that. So, But if you're a Google person, your Gmail person, you can get this, this book in your G books or whatever it's called for free. 
But he has a book on contentment. The Content Life is what it's called. That's Puritan writing. So you have to read it. You have to go, what in the world did that, did that paragraph just say? And you have to go back and read it again because we don't talk like that anymore. We don't think like that anymore. But I'm telling you, he has written an amazing uh, book on contentment. And here's one of his little phrases uh, from that. He says, Discontent is to the soul as a disease to the body. It puts it out of temper and doth much hinder its regular and sublime motions heavenward. See what I'm talking about? you got to get all them uffs out of there and figure out what he's saying. But ultimately he's saying, if you're discontent, your soul is diseased. Something in your soul is out of whack and there's a disease taking over your soul and it puts your body out of temper and then it hinders, listen, it hinders your motion heavenward. Where are we to be thinking? Let your minds dwell on things above. Right? We've been talking about this all through Philippians. And so uh, Thomas Watson, the great Puritan uh, scholar, says you got to figure out how to be content to protect and guard your very soul. He later calls contentment. He calls contentment an ornament that should be spangle a Christian. And he says it's the true blessed life before we get to heaven. Contentment, listen to what he's saying. Contentment is the blessed life here before we get to the blessed life in heaven. This is the, the blessed life is when a Christian lives here and is content. Um, he actually says it's a virtue that all Christians should work toward because it was it will shine forth from us. And he says every grace it, God gives us will shine out from us if we will live content. If we will live content. So I want you to read 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 with me. We'll come back to it in a minute just to touch on it. Godliness with contentment is? Great. There you go. Great gain. Great gain. Well, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. So godliness with contentment is what? Would you like to have great gain by God's standards today? Not by your standards, not by New York Stock Exchange standards, but by God's standards, would you like to have great gain? Godliness and contentment are the two things you've got to have. And the Bible is going to show you exactly, exactly how to do that today. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, our passage for this morning. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord, Paul says, greatly... More rejoicing going on in this book of joy. Now that at last you have revived your concern for me, indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Let me just interrupt you and tell you what that verse is all about. Paul's in prison, two years in prison in Rome, chained to a guard. They didn't have the uh, they didn't have little things you lock on your electronic you know, tags they lock on your legs nowadays. When we house arrest somebody now, we come, hey, this is your little thing. And uh, you can't go outside of whatever boundaries this thing says. That kind of deal. The way they did it back in Paul's day, they just took a guard and you know, flanked him on Paul's arm. So for two years, he's been in house arrest in Rome, right under the palace praetorium. He's been right there for two years waiting on some sort of sentencing or, or some sort of order to come down about him. And his future is uncertain. He does not know if he's going to live or die. His future is uncertain. He even references that in Philippians chapter 2. For me to live as Christ, die as game. He goes, either way, I win. I win. Right? So he's got this great attitude about all that he's going through. But here he is in this difficult place. 
And, and it says that he's thankful that they sent him help. He said, I'm so glad you sent me some support. Now, this is a little a weird, this is a stand given. I'd like to say that me and the Apostle Paul have a whole lot in common. This is a stand given thank you that comes with a, but I didn't need it. <laughs> kind of thing. I, my wife says I'm one of the worst people at giving gifts, and I apologize for that because y'all give me gifts regularly. I stay down here and you hand me an envelope or bring me a guitar down the aisle. Or one time we bought a bunch of tools because the tools got stolen. That was really awesome. And I don't handle that well. I know it. I just don't know how to how to handle being given gifts very well. I'm not a good receiver. I get it. I'm old enough to try to figure out how to work on it. My wife works on it with me some. She's going to write notes out sometimes, so I just have them pull them out of my pocket. Hey, here's what I'm supposed to say. Kind of thing. So I'm not good at it, but, but I'd like to say neither is Paul, because here's what he says. If you read the text, chapter 4, verse 10, thanks, thanks for reviving your concern for me, even though you tried before and you lacked opportunity. Verse 11, not that I speak from want, from learn to be content. I don't need it. Didn't need it, but thanks for sending that. What are you saying? So I'm okay with the way I say thank you sometimes. So he says, but you, he says, in, uh, I've learned to be content, that's our word, in whatever circumstance I am. It means to be totally satisfied in all my circumstances. Verse 12, I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret. New American Standard uses that word. The secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Verse 13, I can do all things through him, Greek word is in him, who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. So at the end of his, hey, I didn't need that, he says, but, but thanks anyway. Thanks for sending it. Appreciate you reviving your concern. Didn't need it. Don't need it. But thanks anyway. So he knows he kind of fumbled through some of that just like I do when I mess up sometimes. But I want you to hear these truths now. Truth number one, contentment is always intertwined with our money and resources in the scriptures. It's, it, we intertwine it with money and resources. Now this is very important. Contentment in the scriptures is always tied to money and resources for our sake. For man's sake. Right? It's very important that you see it that way and I'll help you. Sort that out in a minute because it will just unlock in a second for you like nobody's business. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Here's a good verse that uses the same word contentment. I think we're going to put the New American Standard up here and here's what it says. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. What do you think Paul's talking about sowing and reaping there? Is he, is he talking to farmers? Is Paul having a farming convention? Now, it's actually the context of chapter 9, of chapter uh, 9 in Corinthians and 8 and 9 is all about giving. It's all about your financial resources. And so he's using the analogy of a farmer to talk about your giving. He says, each one must do as he has purpose in his heart, not grudgingly under compulsion. And here it is, for God loves a cheerful giver. You might have heard your pastor use that term a whole bunch. When we take the offering, if you can't give it cheerfully... Please put it back in your wallet, your purse. You know, just leave it where it was. Don't give it to us if it's grudgeful. Don't do that because we're not supposed to give grudgingly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make, read me this next word. God is able to make all grace abound. That's why you want to be a cheerful giver. All grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency. The word all sufficiency in the American standard is the word content. 
mean, the word content means fully satisfied, all sufficient. So God is able to make all sufficiency in everything. You may have an abundance for every good deed, right? So here's this beautiful passage about contentment that's got finances tied into it. He says, be a giver, be a cheerful giver, and you'll be content. You'll be content. Somehow in our Americanized and just fallen human state of mind, we think giving a bunch of our stuff away, being extremely generous, is somehow going to be painful or hurt us. And this text says it's exactly the opposite. If you have an abundance of things, you should be cheerfully giving them away so that all grace will abound to you and God will just show you He is more than sufficient to supply. And I promise you as a family, we've had to practice that some. We get down to the very last bit and we just keep on giving. You just keep on helping people. You go, man, I don't know how we're going to make it. If I give this a little bit, that's, that was the last thing we had. I don't know how to help. But this person needs help, so we're going we're gonna to figure out a way to help them. And we help somebody, and the next thing you know, God just abounds with more grace on top of us to help us. That's how it works. We'll go back to the 1 Timothy 6 passage one more time. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 9. Paul, writing to Timothy, his son in the faith, says, Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. When we brought nothing into the world so we can take nothing out of it, if we have food and covering, one translation says clothing, with these we shall be content. Question. How many of you ate something this morning before you came here? You ate something before you came. I live in Lisa and John. John and Lisa don't eat anymore. They're weird. Okay. How, many, how many of you eat some, ate something for supper last night? Okay. How many of you ate yesterday? Raise your hands. All of you raise your hands. Nobody, nobody's fasting. All right. Fill your fasting down here. So, <laughs> so, we all ate, right? And from what I can tell, everybody's clothed. Thank right? Jesus. Everybody's clothed. Right? <laughs> now here's the two criteria for contentment according to the Apostle Paul to Timothy. If you ate and you're clothed, you're, you're content. You can settle it right there. If you ate and you're clothed, you can be content. So contentment's really an interesting thing because we think it's tied to resources. Think it's tied to money. And it's not. It's not tied to either of those things. I want you to look at this truth number two. Contentment can be learned. It can be learned. Paul says, uh, chapter, I'll flip over to Timothy. Paul says in Philippians 4 and verse 11, to be content, I've learned to be content. In whatever circumstances I am, I've learned to be content. That word is the word we get the word discipline from. It's the word that Jesus got his disciples from. Disciples are people who follow around a master and go, I want to learn everything you know. I want to be discipled by you. You're the master and I need to be taught, so I'm going to learn from you. And the word requires discipline and practice. It implies diligence uh, because in our culture today we have so many of us we try to figure out how to microwave everything and how to speed everything up. I was just fascinated this week by that phrase practice. Jenny was talking about how difficult it's been at remodeling all the Chick-fil-A's where she works 
And the little Chick-fil-A on Dolphin Street did 187. Did I get the number right? 187 cars in the drive-thru in an hour. An hour. Do the math. Three cars a, three cars a minute. You know? You're there for 30 seconds. And you get there, there's 187 cars trying to get through, and they can do. I'm like, man, that's impressive. But you know why? You know, True Kathy wants to do that because America is really demanding. Hey, I'm not going to sit in that line forever. I'm gonna, I want chicken, but I don't want bad enough to sit there a long time. So we're going to speed this process up. And boy, they have figured out how to do it. I can give great kudos to the systemized workings of Chick-fil-A. It's awesome, right? But when you get in a long line anywhere, don't you just get start getting frustrated like crazy? Like, oh, what is taking so long? We get impatient and we get impulsive. We want to get something. We want to get there in a hurry, and we want to figure it out. And so, you know, the Lord taught us, you know, how to build microwaves so you don't actually have to cook anymore. You can just warm things. You know, you just pop it in the microwave, and whatever you know used to take a couple of hours to make, now it's 35 seconds. You need to put a brown bag of rice, put it in there for 90 seconds, and you got rice like you want it now. You nobody has to long cook it or any of that kind of stuff, right? We we have sped everything up, and here's a real important truth. You cannot do that with your spiritual faith. Your faith in Christ, your spiritual life, cannot be rushed. It requires discipline. It requires you to slow down, actually, and discipline yourself and do some hard, diligent work. The other phrase that's important in this is it requires an awareness. This word learn is different from some other words in the New Testament I learned, but it requires an awareness to have to learn to pay attention. You have to begin to see Details about things. And understand details. And so when Paul's saying he's learned it, he's saying through a series of processes in my life, I've studied this, I've began to become aware of what was happening to me, become aware of how my brain was working, become aware of things. You want to see how the process actually played out in Paul's brain? Back up to chapter 3. All these things look like they were great achievements to me. I was making some great strides in my achievement in my career. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a scholar of scholars. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And Paul goes, and then my brain went, ooh, wait a minute, let's do some different math there. None of that matters other than knowing Christ, right? Remember, remember he showed us a little bit of that in chapter 3. So he's saying he's learned it and he's become aware. Truth number 3. Contentment is not related to your circumstances, your income, or your resources. It's not. It feels like it is, which is why we had the first point. And I kept telling you the first point is for us, for our sake. That's why every time it's in the New Testament, God ties it to money. You go, y'all keep thinking these two things fit together. They don't. Contentment has nothing to do with circumstances. It has nothing to do with income or resources. That's why Paul can say... Verse 12, I know, very important word, I know how to get along with humble means and also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstances, I've learned the secret, talk about that in a minute, of being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. One translation in the New Testament says, I know how to abound in a base. I know how to abound, that's have everything, and I know how to be a base. I have nothing. By the way, you can study Paul's historical life and see that's exactly how it is. He's died with kings. He's died in palaces before. And back when he was walking outside of the faith, 
He was a very important person. I guarantee you he was in some homes that were unbelievable. And he had guys paying him an enormous amount of money just to be part of his their entourage. And Paul was a very successful young man. And I also can tell you that he sat in dungeons. Acts chapter 16 says he was in a dungeon. He was stripped of his clothes, beaten, locked in stocks, and put in the lowest part of a dark, dingy dungeon where an earthquake had to shake open the doors. So Paul knows both sides of that. He knows exactly what it means, and he actually reflects on the fact that he knows how to abound in a base. Here's a weird thing. There's a passage in Corinthians where Paul says, 2 Corinthians 12, about grace. Where Paul says he was caught up in the third heavens. Some scholars believe Paul had a near-death experience, basically, in one of his stonings or one of his beatings and all that stuff that's happened to him, or after when he was shipwrecked or whatever, where he was caught up in heaven. And he sees all this stuff in heaven. And then God goes, hey, good news and bad news. This is what it's going to look like when you get here. Bad news is, you got to go down and tell them about the grace. And in chapter 12 of Corinthians, that's exactly what he does. I was called in the third heavens. Can't tell you anything about that because I was kind of sworn secrecy while I was there. And I've had to get a thorn in the flesh to keep me humble about being there. But here's what I will tell you. His grace is sufficient so that in any trial you experience, you can experience grace in God. In anything you're going through. Now can you imagine being the Apostle Paul? And there's a bunch that they think it, you know, perhaps was when he was in Antioch that that happened. Can you imagine being the believers in Antioch and watching the life fade out of his body? He's turning blue. He's dying. He's, he's you know, his physical shells graying out. Now go, oh God, please don't let Paul die. Please don't let Paul die. Paul's in heaven. That's an abounding moment. I'm in heaven. Woohoo! For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I have arrived. Much people down here pray. No, 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 don't take him. God goes, hey, I'm going to send him back to you. And Paul goes, what? Down he goes. Now, now, he's back on earth. Imagine when he wakes up and all those Antioch believers are there praying over him. Whew, thank goodness. And he's like, hey, what was wrong with you? I was abounding. Now I'm back here with you guys. This is crazy. But he knows how to abound and how to be a base. He knows how to suffer, hunger, and he knows how to have it all. So he's learned how to do that. And in the process, the Bible says he knows and the key is that he knows those things. The word means it clicked. Uh, it's, a, it's a word that means he has insight that's been drilled into his heart through perception and awareness, not just by experience. There's a Greek word for, I want to know something by experience, so I'm going to experience it. I want to know what it's like to rock climb. So I'm going to get a friend that knows how to rock climb and tie the knot from his own and jump over the cliff. I've done that. Okay, it's weird, it's freaky, but it happens, it's cool. So you know it by experience. But some things you can't know just by experience. Let me give you a great example for me. Algebra. Okay? <laughs> algebra. When you take algebra, by the way, when I was, back when the earth was cooling, I took algebra in the ninth grade. Right? That was my first algebra class. They're teaching algebra to the first graders now. You ask my wife, she has to teach algebra to first graders. Sad. Me, actually. First graders have to be tortured like that, but we do that as a culture. So here they are teaching algebra, and when you teach algebra, you got these equations with x's and y's and z's and slashes and all kinds of stuff in it. And when you first see one of those, you go, what in the world is that? You know, and then the teacher starts telling you all about algebra. And I remember being in high school looking at the algebra 
And my brain just literally, I mean, it's like you were in a fog. It's like, what in the world? Huh? And I've been a C student in math most of my life. So it wasn't helping to throw something big and new and fancy at me, especially since you renamed it. Because we were just in math class up until that point, remember? Remember you said the seventh grade, you got me in the seventh grade, I'm in seventh grade math. I'm in eighth grade math. Next year, you're going to algebra. What? Algebra. That sounds terrifying. Remember? I was terrified when they threw me in that algebra class. But I remember somewhere about the third or fourth week of algebra, sitting there, I'm failing most of the little quizzes and the tests, the homework's killing me. And every night you're doing these equations and homework. Just tons of them. They need tons of homework for, you know, do every odd number, every even number, whatever it was. And you had all of them. You're just going, I don't get this. I don't get this. I remember one day sitting in class, having done all the discipline and trying so hard to get it. Let me know what this is like. Let me know. And all of a sudden you go, oh, oh, yeah. And all of a sudden your grades go from C to A. By the way, I was a straight-A student in math all through my high school, calculus included. Woo-hoo! You know why? Because it clicked. Because something, there's an awareness, that really wasn't for me, by the way, but there was an insight and an awareness through perceptions of things that just clicked and all of a sudden it made perfect sense. And algebra made sense to me the rest of my life. I even went on to teach algebra in high school to some people that weren't very good at algebra. And I tried to teach them how to click, how to make it click. You know, you really have to, fool, you have to fool your mind at some point and go, hey, this is easier than you think it is. You know, and I used to tell, I used to tell my algebra students, this is, I, I know secrets to algebra that y'all don't know. That's why they've got me teaching remedial algebra. I taught seniors ninth grade algebra at Alliance Christian. <laughs> taught seniors uh, algebra because they had to have it graduate and they had failed it twice. And they just threw them on me and I went, hey, I can do this because I can fool them. I used to tell them there's secrets to it. The secrets are to do exactly what the book says. <laughs> Secrets. Y'all haven't read the book yet. But I'm telling that, I just told them it was secrets. And I teach you a little, I say, hey, here's a shortcut. I'm going to teach you a shortcut. Not a shortcut, exactly how you did fine. But once they got it in their head, it was a shortcut. They're like, oh, this is great. Finally, somebody's on our side. You know, algebra's not so hard. And so they just start plugging away at it. But it's an insight. And Paul says contentment is an insight. It's really a spiritual insight that comes when you just go, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is not about stuff. It's definitely not about my checkbook or my income or my job or lack of it. It's not about any of that. It's actually related to the next world, not this world. You know that contentment is related to how you see the next thing, not this thing? Because that's how Paul's content, sitting in jail with this on his arm, and perhaps notes coming in and say, hey, we're taking your head off next month. You know, you got about three days we're going to lock your head off because that's what we do to people who drive us crazy like you. So, sorry. Do you know, you know how Paul was content, and by the way, all through the book, joyful and, and, and fearlessly facing his future. Do you know how that was all happening? Because he knew Jesus was everything to him, and Jesus was in control. And he wasn't worried about any of it. He actually says, I've learned the secret. Okay, truth number four. Contentment is only found through Jesus Christ. It's only found through Jesus Christ. And it's a verse we all memorize as kids. Man, every football team and every basketball team I was ever on, even in the uh, public arenas that we played in, 
all through my marks growing up here, all the coaches would make us learn these verses. Coaches wanted us to hear this verse. I can do all things through Christ who experiences me. So we'd be on the sideline and we're never going to win, we're never going to win. Coaches, oh, I can do all things through Christ. He gets all fired up spiritually to go out there and you know, try to play football. But the verse is very powerful because of its context. I can, Paul says, I've learned the secret. The secret is actually a word that Paul uses in the Roman, he's in the Roman culture. He's writing to the Philippians, which is a Roman colony to the church of Philippi. And he uses this term that's about the pyramids. It's about the ancient pyramids. And it's the secrets that were buried with pharaohs. They used to you know, bury all these rich and famous, you know, the gods of the Egyptians or whatever. They would bury them with secrets. While people spend years trying to figure out how to dig up the right tomb. Paul used the word for that kind of thing. It's the secret like a king keeps secret. Like we locked it in a thing, we put it in a... We buried it in the ground, we covered it up with a ton of rocks, and then we, we mortared over all that, and then we built a pyramid on top of it, because it's that kind of secret, Father, that I learned the secret. And here's the secret. It's really tricky. I've learned the secret. I can do all things in Christ. It's in Christ that you're content. It's not in stuff. It's not in income. It's not in your circumstances. It's in Christ. Paul was even content when you read 2 Corinthians 12, the passage I read a minute ago, where he's called in heaven and then returned. When you read that, he says, I'm content with my weaknesses. Not just my lack of income or my jail sentence or my prison time or my uncertain future. I'm not just content with that. I'm content with weaknesses that I personally have. I want to say to you, some of us don't ever be content with our weaknesses. Beat yourself up over all those things, and you just keep on. And, and, and Paul says, I've learned to be content in everything. God made me to serve Him. I'm doing the very best I can. By the way, I'm chained to a guard, so all I can do is really witness to this guy and hope that somebody sends letters and stuff for me to write to y'all. By the way, thanks for sending it, but I didn't need it. I'm content. He's saying the whole time he's content. He's learned the secret. Paul's content through all things. He found Christ. As the most preeminent. Now, if you haven't followed Philippians so far, okay, this is the coolest verse in the whole book because it ties back to everything he said. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, um, Being confident of this very thing, he who began the good work in me will complete it. We call that Sunday, God's got this. And we talk very hard about it. God's got this. Don't freak out. God's got it. Whatever it is in your life, if it's something personal, if it's something relational, if it's something financial, if it's if it's something career or future, God's got this. Don't freak out. Paul's telling them while he's chained, God's got this. That's chapter one. Chapter two, he says, let you or chapter one, verse twenty-seven, he says, um, the first command that he gives them: only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. What would it look like to be? To live in a way worthy of the gospel. You know what it looks like? Chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I'm content with that. I'm content with that. That's what it looks like. The whole book is tied between chapter 1, verse 27. And chapter 4, verse 13. And in the middle he says, chapter 2, verse 5. He says, have this attitude of you which was also in Christ Jesus. That did not need to exalt himself. Jesus didn't have to exalt himself. 
And we're always wanting more stuff because it feels like we're exalting ourselves. Like I feel better about myself if I have a fancier car or a better you know, smartphone or a bigger or better computer or you know a nicer floors in my home, you know, or whatever it is we get in our head, there's some something that we think is gonna exalt us and make us feel satisfied. And Paul goes, No, no. You you live worthy and you have this attitude that says I want to be like Christ who says, everyone else is more important than me. So I want to be a cheerful giver to everyone else and let God be my provider. I will let God provide for me. Because when I'm a cheerful giver, all grace abounds to me. Make sense? It's very fascinating what Paul's saying. Because then you get to chapter 3. We just finished that a while back. But you get to chapter 3 and it's all about Christ me. Christ, Christ, Christ. I've thrown everything away, Paul says. Nothing counts. Nothing's of value. Except Christ. He goes, I want to be found in Christ. I want to gain Christ. And I want to know Christ. It's all about Christ. And it's Christ in Him. He actually uses the word in chapter 3 that says, I want to be so intertwined with Christ that when you see Christ, you see me. And when you see me, you see Christ. That's how close I want us to be. And he gets to chapter 4 and he says, I figured the secret out. Being in jail, chained to a thing with an uncertain future. Not knowing if I'm going to live or die. I figured it out. And it freaks the Romans out, by the way, that I'm this way. It freaks out anybody that knows me. I'm okay with whatever God has because I'm content with Christ. Christ is all we need. You know there's this scriptural understanding, something in our American culture, and I really think just in our fallen DNA as men, but mostly in our American culture, something says you've got to have more there's more to everything you need. And you don't have enough. You know, when they asked Rockefeller, you know, when he was a multimillionaire, you know, what, what would you like to have? You know, now that you have everything, what do you want? He goes, just one dollar more. You know, just keep, keep it on the track. You know, it's never satisfied. There's something in us that does that. And the scriptures teach that we are supposed to be completely, think about this word, completely satisfied with just Christ. You want to hear the theology of that? I'm going to help you with it. Okay? The Bible says Jesus is the great I am, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega. You hear me? He's the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega, the great I am. He is all that you need. We live in a world of darkness. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Well, Lord, the world sure is dark. I'm going to have to figure out how to deal with this darkness. Hmm. I don't know if you know this, but in the Bible I've told you about 7,000 times. Even when I opened the eyes of a blind guy one time, I made this statement out loud in public so somebody would write it down and put it in your Bible and it would be saved and preserved for hundreds and thousands of years so that you could read it. It says, I am the light of the world. He who has me, you dwell in no darkness. There's no darkness in me. And if you'll dwell in me, there'll be no darkness, even though you walk in darkness. You'll have the light. See, Jesus is everything Everything we need. The Bible says he is the bread of life. Why do you think it said that? Because we have to have bread. With food, we have to have bread. And he says, I'm the bread of life. Anyone that partakes of me will hunger and thirst no more. That's what he says. You'll hunger and thirst no more. If I'm all you need. If, I'm, if you make me everything. He told the woman at the well, the adulterous, bigoted, arrogant prejudiced, godly missionary that he met at the well. He told her, if you will drink 
you will drink of the water that I'm offering you, the, I'm the living water. Drink of this water and you'll never thirst again. You think he's just making up things there? No. He's trying to get it into our heads. I'm everything you could ever need. I'm actually the air that you could need. I'm everything you could need. He says, I'm the great physician. I'm the healer. You need healing? Your spiritual life needs healing. Your physical life needs healing. Your mental brain needs healing. I'm the great physician. I'm the healer. You need me in your life as a healer. You need an advocate. Well, I'm in trouble. Lord, I'm just in trouble. I made a mess of my life. I need an advocate. By the way, every one of us is in trouble with God before we knew Jesus. You're in lots of trouble legally with God. Before you know Jesus, you're in lots of trouble. You are under condemnation and wrath of God. Then an advocate comes and stands beside you when you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He becomes your lawyer. He becomes your advocate and he stands beside you in the courtroom of God and says, hey, he's with me. He's one of us. He's, he's going in the palace with me. He's our lawyer. You need help with that? He's the lamb who was slain for our sins. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah who protects Judah and God's people. Jesus is the protector of his people. Look in the Bible. It's very clear He protects His people. He takes great care of them. The Bible says in John 17, He's our friend. Lord, I just need a friend. That's what I want, a friend. Jesus says, I am your friend. He actually says in John 17, I call you friends. I call you friends. If you've trusted Christ your Savior, you have a friend in Jesus. He's the one who can open His mouth and make a universe, by the way. You don't have any other friends like Him. I don't care how impressive your friends are. They're not going to reach that level. Jesus is the, the great I am. He's the, he's the counselor who speaks truth to us. You say, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, ask Jesus. He's the counselor. He's called the counselor in Isaiah. And he speaks truth to us. In fact, he doesn't just speak truth to us. The Bible says he dwells in us. And he is the truth. <laughs> so the truth, capital T, the truth dwells in you and me. He is the way. I don't know which way to go, Lord. I don't know what to do in my life. I don't know what I'm trying to do. I'm all confused about that. Hmm. You might want to check out with me because I, as your Lord and Savior, am the way. I'm the direction you need. I'm the counsel you need. I'm all that you need. He, he says, He is, I am the truth, the way. And then for, for life, we need air. And, and other things, but, but we have to breathe air and we have to have our blood flowing through our veins, right? We have to have that. That's what gives us life. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm everything you need. The way, the truth, and the life. The very life that we need is in fact who Jesus is. You understand how important it is that you see Jesus as everything? And then you put him in the place in your life where you go, nothing else is more important. That's what chapter 3 is all about with Paul. Nothing else is more important than Jesus. I need to learn about Jesus, know about Jesus, follow Jesus, obey Jesus, listen to Jesus, so my life is filled with God's things and God's people and God's word and God's help and God's hope and God's plans. Then my life is fulfilled and I'm content. I don't need anything else. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Listen to this phrase. Keep your lives free from the love of money. There it is again. Huh? And be satisfied. Guess what word that is? Content. There you go. Okay. Keep your lives free from love money and be content with what you have. Now, why would I do that? To the writer of Hebrews, some people think the Apostle Paul, 
We have theological debates all day long about that. I don't know who it is. But whoever wrote that beautiful passage from the hand of God, how would I ever be able to keep myself from loving money and be satisfied with just what I have, even when I feel like what I have is lesser? Huh. Well, there's this little prayer that says, I'll never leave you or abandon you. You got me. God's going, you got me. Stop worrying about money. Stop loving money and trying to find things that satisfy. Things are never going to satisfy. Circumstances. You can sit right here and go, hey, if I only had, you know, if I could just win the lottery. I love when we talk about that. If I could just win the lottery. Right? I could just win the lottery. You don't need to win the lottery to be satisfied. As a matter of fact, reading stories about people winning the lottery, it gets really bad in a hurry. People win the lottery and get a lot, of, a lot of messes with that stuff. There's a proverb, Proverbs 30, that says, Lord, don't make me wealthy. Don't make me live in poverty. You pick. It's a great proverb. Proverbs 38 and 9, I think it is. You know, I'm not, Lord, I'm not seeking great wealth. I'm not seeking poverty. I just want to live in the place where you want me to be. That's scriptural. That's so scriptural. There's a little song. It goes like this, and I'm going to ask you to sing it with me. Because it meets the requirements of this entire passage and this entire concept of contentment. And it says this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Can you sing it like you mean it now? Put your voices into it and just sing it with all your might. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. Sing it out. And the things of earth will grow strangely Here's four things I'd like you to take with you. I promise if you practice these things, young believers, old believers, if you've been a saint for 110 years or for 10 minutes, all this practical stuff we're going to put up here works. So number one, make a list of things you believe will help you be satisfied in your life. A brand new Mustang would help me be satisfied in my life. Lord, I'm just telling you, I'm positive that a brand new Mustang, actually a restored old Mustang, that would be just cool for me. That would make me satisfied in my life. No, it won't. It's going to rust. It's going to need new tires. And new... That's fun. All good stuff. But it's not the satisfaction. It, it's not the satisfier of your soul. And it's not life itself. Jesus is. So make a list and then pray and give everything on the list back to God. If you'll do those first two steps, contentment will come a lot faster for you. If you, if you do number one, you go, man, Lord, I really do. I'm serious, Lord. If you just give us a bigger house or a better floor in the house or, you know, Lord, if you could just make this uh, work for me financially, you know, if you could just make, make this deal work out so that I get this. If Whatever it is you're thinking, if you think there's something that you need to be satisfied with that's, that's in behaviors and money and stuff and things and 
circumstances, you've got to let go of it. So number two says just let go. Give everything on the list back over to God. And then ask God to help you become increasingly aware of what his provisions and peace are in your daily life. You need to be like the farmer we talked about. You know, make a list of what you have and go, hey, I kinda, I've always wanted to live on a place like that. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll move in there, right? And then I highly recommend you memorize 1 Timothy 6, 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Just memorize that. It'll help you get your mind off of things that you think you have to have to be satisfied. You think you have to move forward to be satisfied. Harry Ironside had a conversation with one of his parishioners that came to his church. And he asked him, how are you getting along? Ironside asked the man, how are you getting along? And his friend said, oh, fairly well under the circumstances. You've heard that a lot, right? I'm doing okay under the circumstances. Right? Under the circumstances, I'm doing okay. So Ironside being Ironside, Harry Ironside said, uh, I hate to hear that. I'm sorry to hear that you're under the circumstances because the Lord would have us live above the circumstances where he himself can satisfy our hearts and meet our every need for time and eternity. So you don't live under your circumstances. You don't. You feel like you do. And it's a, there's an emotion that's tied to that. There's an emotion that says everything I said today is wrong. That the only way I'm ever going to be satisfied is if I have a little more money in my checkbook, a little nicer home, a little nicer vehicle, a little nicer smartphone. Something emotionally says all that. But I've talked to you right through the scriptures that says, Paul says, change to a garden and prison with nothing. Nothing. Paul says, I'm as content as I can possibly be. I've known both sides of it, and contentment is in Christ. Be satisfied in Him. Amen? Amen. Bow your heads with me today. We're going to close with a great song. It says, Gracefully Broken. But as we prepare to do that, I want to ask you to think about whether you're truly content. And some of you may need to just surrender right there at your seat. If you feel better coming to the altar, that's fine too. Just use our altars. very good sometimes to kneel at the altar. Tell the Lord something. But some of us need to let go of stuff. And say, Lord, I'm not trying to be satisfied in stuff anymore or in plans or in circumstances. I'm going to hand my whole future, my whole life into you now. And I want to trust you. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, you just pray to him and offer up to him that you want to turn your eyes on him. Look full in his face. And know that the things of this earth are dim. They're not important. I have a home in heaven. I have a beautiful home in heaven where angels guard the gates that are never closed. With a crystal sea and, and pure gold that I walk on that's pure and clear where there's trees that bear fruit of 12 different kinds of fruit in one season and each in its own season and where Christ himself dwells in the city with me and God himself is the light of that city. That's my home. And Lord, we offer that up to you now. I say to you as a church, we want to be satisfied in who you've made us. And some of us need to let go of some stuff. I know it was in my heart. We need to let go of some stuff that we cling to, that we hold value in, and not seek it for satisfaction, and trust in you to let us have the things that, that you want us to be pleased and live life in joy with. We look to you now to be our guide, our light, and our darkness, to be the way, the truth, and the life for us, and we pray you'd help us do that in Jesus' name. Amen.